6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of 1 Thessalonians, chapter 1. See, he was a brilliant, he had a great education from the Greek side, not only from the Jewish side. He actually was a very unique individual, a brilliant mind, but also deep background in both of those different cultures. Anyway, after Athens, he departs for Corinth. And that's interesting to us because it's from Corinth that he will write the, the Thessalonian letter. Silas and Timothy come from Thessalonica and bring him news that alarms him. And so that's when he writes the Thessalonian letters. He spends almost two years there in Corinth despite the Jewish opposition. But during those two years, he writes 1 Thessalonians, and we'll be studying that one, and following that, 2 Thessalonians. Each of them are focused on you, what you and I would call eschatological issues. They deal with the end times. So 1 Thessalonians were written from Corinth to, in, in dealing with problems that the Thessalonians had, but they really build upon what he taught them in, his, in the first three weeks of their their Christian walk, which I think is provocative. Anyway, he then sails to Ephesus, resisted those that wanted him to stay longer, and he then travels back to Antioch, back to Caesarea, back to Jerusalem. That gets us to chapter, uh, you know, in chapter 18 focuses on the two years in Corinth. And he writes both of the Thessalonians probably within a few weeks of having visited there. Timothy had been left in Philippi, joins Paul in Berea, and travels with him to Athens. Paul then sends him back to Thessalonica, and the first letter to Th- is in response to Timothy's rejoining Paul and giving him a report on how they're doing. And that's what leads Paul to writing the letter we're going to explore here, 1 Thessalonians. It initiates the New Testament in the minds of many scholars and written less than 20 years uh, from Christ's resurrection. And some believe that Galatians might be another earlier letter. There's some different points of view on that one. It's interesting that every chapter in 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians refers to the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now, the first three chapters of this five-chapter book are going to be sort of personal counsel. But the last two chapters will be very practical implications of what he teaches them there. So uh, Timothy and Thessalonians had just arrived from Thessalonica. They brought supplies from the Macedonian churches to supply Paul's need as the church in Philippi did once and again when Paul was in Thessalonica. So before Timothy and Silas came to Corinth, Paul had to work steadily at his trade as a tent maker with Aquila and Priscilla. So he earns his own keep. He doesn't want to be a burden on them. He doesn't want that to to cloud his message. So he tries as hard to to be as self-sufficient as possible. He'll make reference to that. Turns out he could only preach in the synagogue on Sabbaths, But the rich doors from Macedonia released his hands, and Paul devoted himself to the word, it says. But Timothy and Titus brought news of serious trouble in Thessalonica, and some of the disciples had misunderstood Paul's preaching about the second coming of Christ, and they had quit work. The rapture's coming, so they stopped work. In other words, they they overreacted, as we might think. And they're making quite a, a disturbance about this. 
they were guilty of what many people accuse us as being pre-trib, pre-millennial perspectives that, that we just put our feet on the desk and coast. Well, that's not what we're called to do. We're called to occupy, but that's, that's partly what Paul is going to be dealing with here, plus some misunderstandings of the end times that he's going to clarify. Key point to, as we approach this to understand that he touched upon these eschatological issues during his very brief stay, his first, about a month in Thessalonica. Now, the Jewish leaders in Thessalonica charged it against Paul and Silas to the Politarchs that they had preached another king, King Jesus, in place of Caesar. They promoted that idea as a way of getting Paul and his gang in trouble. Paul had preached Jesus as king of a spiritual kingdom, which the Jews misrepresented to the Politarchs as treason against Caesar, as the Sanhedrin had done to Pilate about Jesus. The same thing that the Sanhedrin told Pilate, that's sort of the same flavor. They're using that to get the Roman authorities against their adversaries here. And clearly Paul had said that Jesus was coming to come again according to his own promise before his ascension. So there's substance to what they said in the sense that Paul was preaching a second coming of Christ. Now, some asserted that Paul said Jesus was coming to come right away and drew their own inference about, for idleness and also fanaticism. And that's the same things going on today. We want to guard against that. You don't want to set dates. We want to, uh, it's our blessed hope that we aspire to, but at the same time, we should be effectively, efficiently, productively being stewards in the meantime. It's strange, by the way, that some scholars today say that Paul did believe and say that Jesus is going to come right away. And they say this in spite of 2 Thessalonians 2, where we'll be dealing with this issue, because Paul denies that he ever said that. So there's a lot of misunderstanding there by people who don't really... See, your protection against these strange ideas is what we call the whole counsel of God. Every view you have should be reconciled with what the text says, and that requires some diligence. We'll move on here. Undoubtedly, Paul hoped for the early return of Jesus, as most of the early Christians did. But that's a very different thing from setting a time for his coming. To anticipate him being coming any moment is one thing, setting dates is quite another. And so it's open to all of us to hope for the speedy return of Christ, but the times and seasons are with God and not with us, and we're going to have a precious chapter, chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians, which is going to deal with that very issue in some very uh, profound terms. It's not open to us to excuse our negligence or idleness as Christians because of such a hope. But it's no excuse for us to be unfruitful as Christians. Quite the contrary. It's a challenge for us to do what we can to rep repair our own report card as we go forward. That's a whole other study. You want to study the final exam that we're going to have before the Bema Seat of Christ. Everyone before that seat will be Christians, will be saved, but they'll be rewarded according to the fruit bearing. Very important concept. But anyway, this blessed hope should serve as a spur to increased activities for Christ in order to hasten His coming. So Paul writes uh, this group of epistles to correct the misapprehension and the misrepresentation of his preaching about last things. So there are a lot of misunderstandings that are prevalent today that these epistles, both the first and the second, will clear up. But by the way, it's a very rare preacher who has never been misunderstood or misrepresented. And so we should recognize that is, was very prevalent then and continues today. So the purpose of the letter the writer's joy at their steadfast. He's very encouraged by what he hears from them. But he also wants to refute some of the false charges and slanderous insinuations that are being circulated. 
and he's going to respond to these personal attacks, assailed motives, self-seeking cowardice, and so forth. But you're also going to see all through this letter his concern over loved one. Uh, the, the, uh, well, I started to say his concern for them. He really loves them. You can find his passion all through here. But he also is going to respond to their concern over their loved ones who have passed on. And we're going to talk about the, that's what's going to give rise in chapter 4 to the famous Harpazzo passage that we'll deal with as we go. So let's just take a look at the letter. We'll read our way through. Paul and Silvanus and Timotheus unto the church of, Thessalon- of the Thessalonians, which is in God the Father in the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers. Remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of God our Father, knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. So he says, for our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost, and in much assurance, as ye know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. And ye became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Ghost, so that we were examples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. For from you sounded out the word of our Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith to Godward is spread abroad, so that we need not to speak anything. For they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. Wow, so that's the letter. And now what we're going to try to do, having just read it through, let's try to unpack some of the gems in Paul's epistle here. Okay, he opens, Paul, Silvanus, Timotheus, unto the church of the Thessalonians, which is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be unto you, and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice there's a three of them. He's going to use the word we, realize that we embraces three people, not only Paul, but Silvanus and Timotheus. There's no evidence, by the way, that the three were ever together again at one time in the future. Very precious time. It's uh, remarkable how Paul frequently speaks of bearing up God's people in prayer. He apparently had a very continual, active prayer list of his converts. And he was a busy guy, but he always found time for prayer. What an example for all of us. Silvanus, okay, that's... uh, a Roman name. It means actually the god of the woods or woodland, if you will. Luke always calls him Silas. Paul always speaks of him as Silvanus. They're just uh, two equivalent words. He was an esteemed member of the Jerusalem Council, we notice in Acts 15. He was considered a prophet in that terms. He was a Roman citizen also, just like Paul. He was in hearty agreement with the council decision regarding Gentile believers. A very fitting co-worker and preacher and a partner for Paul. He was the amanuensis for 1 Peter. Later on, he's going to be like the secretary, the, the, the scribe that will assist Peter's first letter. When you compare the Greek of 1 Peter and 2 Peter, 2 Peter is much coarse, rougher. It's Peter's own word. But 1 Peter was written by a professional scribe by the name of Silvanus. So we also have Timotheus. This was, the term means honoring God. That term occurs 24 times in the New Testament. 
He was the son of a Jewish mother and a Greek father. He, of course, becomes Paul's very special protege. And he was his con- one of the converts at Lystra on the first tour, and Paul picks him up on the second tour to be a partner with him. We find him in a co-salutation in five of Paul's epistles. In other words, virtually a, a junior partner, if you will, as Paul traveled. And Paul, notice he does not call himself an apostle in this letter. He will in later epistles, but he doesn't do so here, perhaps because his position uh, has not yet been so vigorously attacked yet as it was later. So he asserts his authority as an apostle in subsequent letters, but he doesn't here. He speaks of uh, Paul, Savannah, and Timothy, unto the church at the, of the Thessalonians. Term is in the Greek, ecclesia. It means the called out assembly. Called to, and they really were called to assemble in homes. They didn't have to, when we think of churches, we think of buildings. But that's the use of the term in a different way. Here we're talking about the mystical church, and when it met, it primarily met in small groups, typically in homes. Everything in the book of Acts occurred in homes, interestingly enough, pretty much. In, in the Septuagint, that term is used for the assembled people of God is the way it's used. So it's, it's used in the Septuagint, which is Greek of the Old Testament, which is uh, uh, it's a, in its mystical sense, if you will, or spiritual sense. Church is never a building. One of the elders was complaining that they're chewing gum in the sanctuary. The pastor corrected him. He said, no, no, no. The sanctuaries are chewing gum, making the point that you and I are a sanctuary, not the building. To the Lord Jesus Christ, the word here is kurios in the Greek. That was a word appropriated by Claudius and other emperors in, the, in emperor worship, if you will. And it's also common in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, as a word for God. And uh, you'll find the LXX is our abbreviation for Septuagint as we go through. It's interesting to realize that most of the quotations in the New Testament, when they quote from the Old Testament, they typically are quoting from the Greek version of the Old Testament. And that's kind of interesting. And that's one of the reasons the New International Standard Version Bible is using the Dead Sea Scrolls as the primary text. It even uses the Masoretic and the Septuagint as variants, if you will. Very interesting perspective that develops from that subtle difference. In any case, Paul places the Lord Jesus Christ in the same plane as God the Father here, which is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus. He puts them equivalency here. Very profound theological point underscored in this, of course. The Lord Jesus, which is derived from the Latinization of the Greek transliteration of the Hebrew Joshua, which of course is an abbreviation for Yehoshua, which means Yodhivave is salvation. Some people get uh, a lot of discussion about that. It's just, uh, in effect, our, uh, mis- trans- our, our, our mungling of the Greek, if you will, term that's in the text. Uses, but Jesus, if you will. No big deal there. The word Christ is a title. It's not his last name. Christos. That's the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew term Messiah or Mashiach. The anointed one is what it means. So many people think of the Lord Jesus Christ, they think of Christ as his last name. No, it's his title. He's a Lord and he's also the Messiah. It's interesting, the International Standard Version, you don't find the word Christ in the New Testament. You find the word Messiah, just to make that point a little crisper, a little more focused. And I think that's interesting. He says that we're in the Lord Jesus Christ. Interesting term here in the Greek grammar. We're in God. That's not spatial, but positional. A vital organic union which makes possible the sharing of a common life is the concept that pervades Paul's theology in all his letters, that we are in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
in the sense that there's an organic union with him that we share. In fact, that's part of the magic, if I can use that term, of the New Testament, the exchanged life. We give him our lives to get his life. And that's part of what's going on here. We need to embrace and understand. So, grace be unto you, and that is charis in the Greek. It means to rejoice, greetings, free and unmerited favor from God is the way we're using it here. It's one of the great words of the New Testament. Uh, It's characteristic of the Pauline epistles. Only Paul uses that term in his salutations and his closes. Paul really adopts it. It really is, in fact, it becomes somewhat a fingerprint of Paul's in his letter. There's probably uh, no word that carries more meaning for Paul's messages than that word, the word grace. You and I can study it a lifetime and still not fully apprehend the implications of that word for you and me. Uh, Very, very special. Grace be unto you and peace from God. Now the word peace here is an interesting word. It's more than the Hebrew shalom, by the way, which is so common in the salutations. It's that precious sense of inner tranquility and well-being from being reconciled to God through Christ. All of religion is man's attempt to get reconciled with God and that doesn't work in all its various forms throughout history. It doesn't work. It started in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve making aprons to cover themselves and God says, no, no, no. He covered them with skins, teaching them that by the death of innocent uh, life they would be covered. And it was a rabbinical teaching that early, strangely enough. And the whole idea is that the reconciliation comes from God. God, Only God is capable of providing that reconciliation by paying the price for us. And that's a very fundamental concept. You want to really understand the Epistle of Romans, which is perhaps the classic treatise on that whole issue. So this introduction uh, is brief, but it's rich and gracious and pitches the letter at once on a high plane. Just an introduction very quickly. Here we are in the first verse, but it moves this whole thing to a very, very high plane. So Paul continues, we give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers. Thanksgiving. It was a priority for Paul and it was a continual with Paul. And the plural here implies that all three missionaries prayed together. Paul, Savannah, and Timothy didn't do it. They did it together. And we give thanks in everything. It's in many of Paul's letters again and again. It's been said that the Spirit of Christ is the oil that feeds the lamp of praise. Indeed. How we should pray, and if you can't, if nothing else is on your heart, just praise Him uh, always, continually. And you can't begin to exhaust the list of things that we should praise him for. But it's interesting, you know, I want you to notice all through this letter the affection that he has for the Thessalonians. He tried several, t- twice to return, but there's always hinder- hindrance. He wanted desperately to come back and be back with these young converts. And so here is a key verse, verse 3. Paul says, remembering without ceasing, wow, three things, your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of God our Father. These three graces would also be featured later in several of Paul's writings, including the Corinthian letter. The work of faith, the patience of hope, and the labor of love. This is a a very, very fundamental uh, trilogy that will occupy us as we go through this letter here. The work of faith. We're talking about faith, not works. And don't confuse works here with fruit-bearing. Our work of faith, you're, you're, you're saved by faith, not your works. But if you have faith, 
the fruit that you'll bear will testify of that faith. So it's n- don't confuse works here in the Galatian sense of trying to earn your, your salvation. No, 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 no. Your faith will produce fruit and that fruit testifies of your works. The word works is a better term would be fruit bearing. Kind of thing. It's clearer what we mean here. We're justified by faith, but the faith produces works or fruit bearing. And Romans chapter 6, 7, and 8 hammer that home for you if you haven't gotten into it yet. And that's exactly what John the Baptist taught. And it's also what Jesus taught, and that's what James emphasizes in his epistle, is that faith produces works. Don't confuse that with trying to earn your salvation. No, no, no. Jesus paid for the whole thing uh, 3,000 years ago on a cross. You can't add to it. That's blasphemy. But faith in that will produce fruit. And that fruit bearing is what we're dealing with here, the work, using the word works here in that. So there's a lot of confusion about that. The labor of love. Wow. The word agape, of course, is one of the great words of the New Testament. And the koros, the word there, labor, is a fatiguing labor to the point of weariness. Wow, do you love that much? Do you love that much that your labors, you're fatigued to the point of weariness? That's why he's saying the labor of love. Wow. And then the patience of hope. Patience in the sense of steadfastness. Active constancy in the face of difficulties. Hanging in there. Sometimes our afflictions are a test of our faith. Are you really, do you just say it or are you serious about it? That will show up as to how you deal with afflictions or tribulations. You should have a patience that, ins, that is inspired by hope in the sight of God our Father. The picture here is profiled here as if it's the day of judgment when we're all going to appear before God. And these three things will be evident, of course. Faith, love, and hope. We can conjoin these or put them together, analyze this trilogy all through the epistles. Not just of Paul, but also of Peter and others. So it's a paradigm. This sometimes helps. I like these paradigms. Faith really rests upon the past. You have faith in what has been done for you on the cross. So faith looks to the past. Love works to the present. Love is what you should be manifesting as you go continually now. And hope looks to the future. Our hope is our our aspiration for what's coming. So faith, love, and hope are past, present, and future in their tenses here. Each one looks outward. Faith looks back to a crucified Savior. Love looks up to a crowned Savior. And hope looks on to a coming Savior. The church is distinguished by these three things. Faith, hope, and love. And this is incidentally characteristic of Paul's writing. If he finished a sentence, it would uh, have been complete and well designed. But he doesn't quite finish this. His thoughts continue all the way through to verse 5 and beyond. So if you really start structuring these things, they can be challenging. Because his sentences grow like living things rather than being constrained by grammatical rules. That's what makes it so challenging to really uh, apprehend what Paul is getting across here. And sometimes Paul says, finally, my brethren, and all that means you only have a few chapters to go yet. Paul says, knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. Oh, here's that term. For first of all, brethren, see, your bre- the reason you use the word brethren is because you're born into that relationship. When you have a brother... That's not something you had a choice over. That was somebody that was born in your family. He's a, he's a sibling in the fleshly sense. But also in the spiritual sense, he's a brother because you're both born into God's family. That word has a lot of meaning there. And Paul uses that word 60 times. 
14 times in the first Thessalonians, seven times in the second letter. Interesting, it's always a multiple of seven. That's the heptatic structure, and I won't start on that one right now. Your election of God. Here's that word. It's not in the Septuagint. It's only seven times in the New Testament. Always of God's choice of men. It's a uniquely New Testament term here. It's a Greek term, but you don't find it in the Old Testament translation. You do find it seven times in the New Testament. There's that seven again, interestingly enough. And of course, speaks of divine election. In the Old Testament, it was national election. It was the nation Israel that was elected. In the New Testament, the term is used of an individual and personal and spiritual election. When did God first start dealing with you? Before the foundation of the world. When is that evident in your life? When you were called. Many are called, but few are chosen. We'll move on here. Love and election are connected in 2 Thessalonians. We'll deal with that there more. Election prevents us from thinking of salvation as dependent on human whims, and it roots it squarely in the will of God. If you are in Christ, if you've accepted Christ, it's because of God's initiative. He gets the credit. You don't. It wasn't that you were brilliant. No, 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 no. You're responding to His initiative. And the concept of election protects us from thinking of it as anything we did. No, it's what God did. God has elected you. He's chosen you. He's brought you into His family. Boy, that makes it precious. But it also means that we should have assurance, not presumption, holiness, not moral apathy. You're called to holiness. We're going to talk about that. It's humility, not pride. You have nothing to be proud of. God did it all. It's His witness, not our lazy selfishness, if you will. If left to ourselves, we do not wish to leave our state of untroubled sinfulness. If it was left up, we would stay in sin. No, no. He's called us out of that. He's brought us up out of that pit, if you will. So when did God first start dealing with you? Before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 1.4, precious verse. You were not an afterthought. He had you on his mind before the whole drama began. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of 1 Thessalonians. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-K-HOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, please visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.